All right. We got here Nate Fisher, founder of Peak 10 Group. Nate is calling in from the oldest hotel in the history of mankind. We were making a joke before he hopped on here. We're looking at his background like, this cannot be his home. You know, successful real estate investor, all this stuff. I mean, the wallpaper is from 1940. (laughs) The carpet is green. audio. Nate, thanks so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Really looking forward to it. Absolutely. So yeah, I am, I am at the Greenbrier in West Virginia. Yes. Very, very old hotel. And Landon made a very awesome, educated guess and got it right. So that, that's great. Perfect. All joking aside, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Appreciate you coming on and you know, ready to pour into our listeners. So tell us a little bit more about your story and where you're at today. So, you know, I live in central Ohio. I grew up in a multifamily family. And what I mean by that is my mom and dad were buying singles, doubles in the late sixties, early seventies. And doing the Burr method, buying, renovating, and fixing them up and living in them. You know, when I was a little kid, so I sort of grew up in the multifamily family. Probably like a lot of your listeners, you know, I I was doing a little bit of everything when I was a little kid. I was on the grounds crew. I was working on the, you know, got promoted up to doing roofs and doing clean outs of apartments. So, and I've sort of been in this apartment multifamily industry my whole life. Always knew I wanted to, to be in it, but didn't really know where I fit. And, you know, my family business was a, a thousand units of C-class property. So, kind of tough stuff in central Ohio and ended up saying, well, I'm not sure where I fit, but I knew I wanted to get a degree. So I went to Ohio State and I got a real estate degree in real estate finance. And and then I was sort of off. So that's kind of how I got to to here. And, and that's, you know, that's a good point to kind of pause and ask answer some questions. Sure. So started in a multifamily family, like tell us a little bit more about that dynamic, because I think a lot of people immediately, they hear real estate investing and they automatically think, millions upon bajillions of dollars. Like, How was it? Was it more like a blue collar style? How was the lifestyle coming up there? And then also, like, what was the education like? Because like, that, is, that is a hack to become successful <laughs> in real estate is just learn it from a really young age. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're true owner, owner operators in every sense, you know, family business. So you do everything. Mom worked in the business. My older brother, who's seven years older than me, he spent his whole life in the business dad was in it. So it was really everybody all hands on deck and doing a little bit of everything. And so my summers were spent working for the family business and I'd be going to a a sporting event and my dad'd be like, Hey, wait a minute. Hold on. I got to go look at this apartment complex over here. So, you know, I do that to my kids today. Hold on a second. I got to go stop and just check out this apartment complex real quick. And so, you know, you learn to do a little bit of everything. And when I say owner operator, also we were doing, we were running the landscaping crew the, you know, buying the stuff. My dad is talking to the banks. We're running the punch out crews. We're doing everything. We're doing the roofs. I mean, we were everything. And so that was really a, you know, immersed, completely immersed in, in an education about how to do things. Now the, the really, you know, kind of interesting thing is my dad sort of set in his ways and he built a really, really strong engine, you know, got up to 1200 units actually at one point. And so I learned a lot from him about how to do things. And that was sort of the, the 1970s, 80s way. And as I got older, I'm like, wow, how do I go buy 250 units? Like your guest the other day, he was talking about buying 400. Well, I didn't know how to do that because I was sort of limited. We were buying smaller stuff as a family. I'm like, I've got to figure this out, how to go big. So so talk about where you're at today and just what that journey has looked like more, I guess, specifically, like what is your business like today? You know, what does your team look like? What are your deals looking like now versus what they look like five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I, 
my company, I got sort of got started in peak 10 in 2003, 2004. I, I ran that my company for a while and it was a small commercial development company. We're doing little projects and the great, you know, great financial crisis came and there really wasn't work. So I said, okay, this is my time to go back to the family. And so 2008, I started back to the family. I said, well, I've got to get good. I've got to really, you know, get, become an expert at this property management thing. So I went and there's a group called IRAM and I have a CPM designation. And so I fast tracked and got my CPM certified property manager. So I became an expert in management. And I think the management is the basis to build a lot of stuff. And so I use that as the basis to build the company. So Peak 10 sort of set dormant while I worked for the family and was there with the family through 2018. Now, a, a pivotal point was 2012 or 13. We said, okay, we got a call from a, a, a friend who said, hey, we've got a deal in Austin, Texas. It's 100 units. Would you be willing to invest 50% of the equity? And we said, yes. We didn't know because before the family business, we'd only work with ourselves. We didn't partner. So we started investing alongside other people. And so we did a lot of those deals where we were, you know, KPs or GPs alongside a, another partner in Texas. And, and that still goes on today. But what I figured out is in the family business, and I started looking at syndication and how do I do syndication? How do I use other people's money to grow? Because I was sort of confined in the family business. I didn't see that we could grow the way I thought the modern apartment multifamily person would grow. And so 2016, I, I bought 400 units in Dayton, Ohio with the help, you know, used my family as, as sort of backers and they're my, my investors. But I came out with a new sort of the more modern cost structure where we could use other people's money. And so that's what my deals have been looking like for the past seven, eight years. It's, it's not fully syndication, but most of the time it's my family members that are my investors and some third party outside money. And so that's the model that, that I'm in, in using today. And so. Here I am, 2023. I've kept my property management somewhat small. We're at 450 units right now, 430 units. And that's intentional because I don't, I'm investing in a lot of other people's deals. So I have my own deals that I'm active in. I'm a limited partner in a lot of other people's deals. And then as of the last two years, I've been getting into the new, new construction side. So I have two buildings under construction. And so, yeah, it's, it's sort of all across the, the board right now. Sure. So, so what are some of the indicators that attract you towards whether an apartment building is a good buy or not? Like, what are some of the first things that you're looking at? Let's say when your boots on the ground, because I know you like to see the physical property. Like, what are some of the things that you're looking at? And then let's go into like, what do the numbers need to look like to where this might make sense to do a little bit more due diligence on? Yeah. I mean, for me on the management side, if I'm looking at a property that I'm going to manage, then I'm looking at proximity to my team. How much extra labor is that going to cost? And can I bolt it on to the existing team? Because I have a really good team. They've been with me now since that 2016. And so real tight-knit group that's been with us for a long time. Can I bolt more onto them? What's their capacity? And if it's too big for them, then I need to look to build a new team. So it also depends on geographics. Where's that property located? So my portfolio is in Dayton, Ohio. About a month ago, I bought a 30-unit building with no occupants in it, and it's literally next door to my existing portfolio. So real easy buy, bolts right on. Now, if I'm looking in central Ohio where I have no team or maybe in a city in Cincinnati or something, then I'm going to look to something that's a little bit bigger that I can build a team around. So it is really on a case-by-case basis. And you know, deals today are a lot different than they were a year and a half ago. I mean, the market has totally changed. So 
when I'm looking at numbers and sense, they've got to make sense. You know, they've got to make sense in today's, you know, interest rate environment. Can't buy deals based on hopium in the future. Like that, that, that game is a little bit done, right? Like, oh, I'm going to have an event next year and I'll make, you know, I, I just think you've got to buy on today's interest rates and they got to make sense today. Sure. And, and so let's, let's play with that a little bit because a lot of people, that I talked to like, oh, cool. Yeah, we'll buy and maybe we won't cash flow is great, but then we could refinance down the road when rates go down. You're saying, hey, let's buy based on like not even thinking if the rates ever go down or not. So like what specific numbers are you looking for? How much does this have to cash flow for it to make sense for your portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I've got to, again, like I listened to to your, your guest the other day and, you know, it does, I do want to have a value add component. I do need to have some way of forcing something to whether it's through reduction in expenses, income. So I need to have that component to it. I like to get to something where I can get seven, eight, nine, 10% in year two on the cash flow. And so if I can get cash on cash based upon that, then, then I'm happy. You know, I need to have some, whether if I'm an LP investor, I'm looking for seven, eight or 9% pref on my own stuff. That's what I want to try to deliver is at least a 7% to my LP people. And, you know, hopefully it does cash flow 10%. So those are kind of some of the things that, that I'm looking for. What advice do you have for some of like the younger investors that are maybe a little bit more, I say younger because maybe they just lack a lot of experience, but they're very okay with risk. They're aggressive, let's say, right? And they, they want to try to step into your world and step into your space and try to get real aggressive real fast and, and leverage a lot of money. Like there's a lot of young guns, we call them out there that are trying to figure this stuff out. What, what advice do you have for them? What are some early mistakes you see people make that, that, that they could maybe avoid by meeting Nate? <laughs> well, you know, I remember just a couple years ago, I think it's being too aggressive too fast. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that just grew so fast and maybe they haven't taken deals full cycle. And that's important because I think you need to have a mixed bag in your portfolio. Some that you can be aggressive on, but you need to have those singles. And it's okay to hit a single, right? Like you don't have to hit triples all the time. Have a couple singles in your portfolio that pay the bills when it gets funky like it is today. So I think having that mix, don't gamble too hard. Don't go too fast. Hit a couple singles, have those because when it gets lean, those singles pay the bills. And, you're, you're, and yeah, sorry. no, no, please finish. Oh, I was just going to say, and you know what I love about the, the multi so collaborative, like go find a guy like myself, ask questions. We want to talk about real estate. We're here to help. Like you don't need to do it all on your own. When I was talking about the way my dad did it and some of the, I'll call it the original rent men and the landlords of the seventies, those guys were all about themselves. They weren't collaborating. And so they would sort of get stuck and want to fight each other. And and today it's just such a great time to be in this business because you can reach out to someone. Someone's going to say, Hey, you know, I'll help you with this, or here's what I did. Like there's a lot of collaboration. So don't be afraid to ask for help. We all like to talk about deals, right? I will talk about real estate 24 seven. You just got to ask me. So don't be afraid to ask. That That's what I observed about the modern real estate world and industry right now is that like, there's no longer this, like, of course, there's some exclusivity to it, but like these higher level syndicators, people that have been doing this for a while are still open to talking to super young guys. They may not have experience, but there's deals everywhere. And it's no longer this zero sum game where I'm the only one that has to win. Everyone can win and there's enough money to be made. And so I, I love the point that you made right there because it is collaboration because you don't have the same access in other parts of the country that you do mm -hmm. in Ohio. 
right? But the deals might still make sense. And by having a network and leveraging a network, it works out perfectly. I guess where I want to segment to just very high level, because this is something interesting for me selfishly, is I read in your bio, you had dabbled a little bit in student housing as well. Can you walk through a little bit about those types of deals and, and what that experience Yeah, like? you know, what I will say is I'm always trying to teach myself something new. And I do that to a fault. And so I will make an investment. I just made my first self-storage investment because I wanted to learn. And, you know, it was $50,000. If I can learn how to do self-storage for 50000 and make a couple bucks, I'm all about it, right? So those are the kinds of things. And that's sort of how I got in a little bit to the student housing. I, we have a, a, another family friendship that's in the same space that we're in. And we made an investment in 2012. That was one of the, about the same time as I talked about the Austin, Texas investment into student housing. One, we needed a, a place to park some money. And two, we, we love, we wanted to learn about student housing. And so now we've got about 100, 120 units that we are limited partners in on the Ohio State campus. And so I get a chance to learn front row about student housing and how that, because it's different than market rate. It's different than affordable. It's just a different game. So I call those my bonds in my portfolio. They're not the greatest, highest returns. But again, like I said, I like having those singles in my portfolio for these lean times. Yeah. So Nate, like as you are looking at these properties, you know, I imagine not all of them are in the best shape, right? And if you're looking to ever sell in the future, you want to, I assume, rehab some of the property. You want to make it better than, than it was when you walked in the door as you're walking out, right? So what does that process look like? I guess when you are looking for properties, what are you looking for? And then you know, when you do have to put fires out and clean things up, what does that process typically look like for you in your business? Yeah. I mean, there's got to be something to do in the project. So if you're doing a value add, project, there's got to be some way to increase revenue, whether it's an interior, you know, rehab or landscaping, curb appeal, you know, each property is going to be a little bit different. So there has to be something to do there. In the case of the building I just bought about two weeks ago, 30 units, no occupants, no fire panel for the last year and a half. And so this thing is the scariest property I ever bought. So this isn't what I look for, but this was what it was available and what made sense in today's interest rate environment. Like, this one needs a huge lift. I've got to make the city happy because they wanted to condemn the building. Again, no fire panel. So I literally have a 24-hour fire watch. So I have to look at all the things to get the building back into one compliance with the city so that there's some housing violations, fire violations. And I've got to, I've got to do full rehabs on 50% of the units. So I don't normally look for this kind of stuff. But today, that's like what I'm looking at because it's a big, big lift. And what, why it makes sense in today's interest rate environment is because I only need a $500,000 construction loan. So I'm not financing the, the purchase of the whole property. I raised a million and I'll do a $500,000 construction loan. So now I've got a lot of flexibility. So those are just some of the deals that make sense today. I don't have to finance the whole purchase price. So I can do these kinds of heavy lifts if I'm only financing just the rehab. Sure. I love it. I love it. Super tactical. You talked about growing up in a multifamily family, right? It's a generational business. And that over time, you know, comes with transferring assets down and transferring wealth down. So I know in your bio, you talk a little bit about estate planning and taxes and all that stuff. Tell us a little bit more about what your experience was and maybe some stories that went wrong or some ways to really plan well, because it's very nuanced. A lot of people push it off and they don't plan properly, end up getting hit with huge capital gains or whatever that looks like. Tell us a little bit more about 
what the estate planning and tax side looks like. Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time. This is actually the the part of the business that I really, really enjoy. Like, because I have three generations, I have a 83-year-old mother and father, my brother and sister and I, and now we have kids coming in. So I spend a ton of time thinking about this part of the business. And so estate planning is something you can never start too early. I think, you know, if you're going to have kids, you should start thinking about it now. And also, if you're going to be in this business, chances are you're going to have an estate tax problem. So it's never too soon to go talk to your estate planning attorney to get things set up the right way. So I love looking at this and trying to trying to look at properties and factor in how does this work for three different generations of real estate people? How do I need to set this up? And and so again, estate planning is like a picture that you continue to paint on. It's never going to be perfect and it's never going to get finished. Just keep painting it. All you can do is make it better and better for that moment in time, but don't put it off and don't put it off with your mom and dad. So it's tough conversations, but you got to start, got to start on them and, and start on them regularly. So, so what, what advice do you have for young investors like, without being, you know, giving legal advice, obviously, right? But like what, what general practices that you, that you, that you think about that come to mind for somebody who's starting in your business, has a, has a growing business, has some success, buy it, has, you know, has some real estate under their belt. What are some good asset protection ideas to start thinking about more specifically for folks to where maybe we're speaking Spanish to them right now? <laughs> yeah, I think the very simple low hanging fruit is, Try not to buy stuff in your own personal name, create LLCs and, you know, get that part, that part put together and buy them. Yeah. Buy them inside of the LLCs. That's a, a real, you know, sort of simple way and thing you should, you should do for every deal and, and a new LLC for everyone. And so, you know, there's also some financial things to think about in there because there's how do you buy it when you're growing? And then there's how do you give it away and when do you get it out of your estate and, so there's a lot of things like that that I like to think about too. So are you able to give us some real life examples? And it could be high level, doesn't have to walk through exactly your scenario, but tell us a little bit more about what your organizational structure looks like when you have a lot of properties moving around, like what trust structures you explored. And then also I'd love to explore a little bit more about like what strategies you use to mitigate taxes as well, because real estate is probably the most tax advantage, tax advantageous industry to be in. Would love to hear more real life applicable examples of how this actually works in real life. Yeah. So, I mean, I could talk really deep into this. One of the, the, I guess, oh boy, you know, like right now as an example, I'm starting to, let me say, you have to be careful as you're on your way up. You don't want to give it away. Don't be too quick to give it away because the banks are going to require you to have liquidity, right? And let's say you need 12% liquidity to go buy deals. So make sure that you're cognizant of what you're keeping before you start giving it away and putting in trusts. And so you'll get to a tipping point when maybe when it's time to give it away or you really need to start getting things out of your name. And so you can do some things like my kids have trusts. They're in a lot of my deals. My wife has a trust. So we're starting to do things to where it's outside of, of our estate meaning my wife and I. And so you can do things like grow it in your kids in a trust that's outside. Now, it depends on how you're going to go get financing, but some bankers will allow you to count these trusts towards your liquidity, which can be a big benefit. Some won't. So you got to be aware of those things. Also, one of the things that I've done is I've had a captive insurance company since 2015 that my brother and sister and I are the beneficiaries of that's owned by a trust. And so that's a super high level way of one creating an expense over here in your property and then it moves out 
and you get a income tax deduction for the expense, but then ends up outside of your estate. And then you can loan it back to yourself as a cheap cost of capital. So that's something that we've been doing. And it's a very high level strategy and you have to have the right group of consultants around you to do it the right way. And yet sort of have to commit to, you know, the, the annual ongoing fees are about $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to have free cash flow, but there's lots of little tricks like that that you can use to, again, take advantage of all the tax strategies that you possibly can. And geez, Nate, and geez, Nate, I wonder if the IRS is going to tax you if you, if you borrow. Right. <laughs> no, well, it, not if you borrow it. Right. Um, exactly. No. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so it's if you take a distribution, they can you can t- get taxed if you take it. Right. So that's why you're. So you're right. That's why you lend it back. I was just being yourself. sarcastic. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. it's a great strategy. It's just. Beautiful. I want to play. I want to play with the captive idea real quick because this is yeah. most what only maybe one percent of our audience is going to understand this, but we've we've had a lot of real estate people on, so I want to go really deep real quick if that's okay. Sure. Um, Captives are very nuanced. As you said, you have to very, you have to work with a very, like people that are by the book. It's, it's very likely to get audited as well. So you need to have it protected. What do you use the captive for? Like, what are you insuring? Cause I know a lot of people, like, you don't want to take on the massive risks because like, you're actually likely to pay out the claim, which you don't want to do. But like, what is, what is actually your captive strategy? If you don't mind, you know, yeah. So, so. Depending on, again, this goes back to the LLC structure. So you need to have this safe harbor where you have, let's say, 15 LLCs that all own multifamily property. So they have the same risk profile. From that, those 15 LLCs, then you have an actuarial study by your captive manager, which then determines how much risk you can insure. So the captive manager does the study, and that tells you what you can buy, how much risks you can insure. From that, you have to have a certain percentage that are, I think 15% are operational and there's 85% or other things. And so you look for risks that you can ensure that are not readily available on the commercial market. As an example, regulatory risk. So I have, I, I pay myself for this policy that says if the, the government comes by and says every door in my apartment complex now has to be metal. Well, that's a very low chance that that happens, but I can buy premiums that, that I can't buy that on the normal market. So mm-hmm. I'm looking for risks like that. I mean, there's a bunch of, it's really a weird thing to sit down with your actuarial captive manager and talk about how bad your business is. Then he rewards you because now you can buy risks because you told him how bad your, your business is. <laughs> so it's like this, this weird thing you have to do, but you're looking for these really odd risks that you can't get in the market. Sure. I, I appreciate yeah. it. That's a, that's a real life example that a lot of people say, Oh, do a captive, but it just, it, it like this, this is where it comes down to. And I appreciate you, you bring an actual factual sense to it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about some of the tax strategy side of things. Like why, like, how are you able to continuously mitigate tax on the personal side inside of these real estate businesses? Are we running cost segregation studies? Are we finding ways like, are, who are we aligning with on the professional side? We'd love to hear that world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cost segregation studies are a great tool. It is something that we employ on every, almost every single deal. Now, like the deal that I just bought recently, it's almost too small. The, the benefit isn't that great. So you really need to have a property that's about a half a million to a million and up uh, that to, to justify that, that cost seg- segregation study. So we're doing that combined with the captive. And then we're strategically looking at what our tax, what our 
the tax gorilla from all this, you know, this, this, these deferred gains that are falling around. So we try to look at things that we can sell at the right time. So in a year where maybe we had a lot of a premium in the captive and we've had a big cost segregation study that year, we can take some losses. And so maybe we'll sell a property and pay and go ahead and offset those. So very methodical about that. And I, you know, one of the things on the, on your show the other day, I was listening to him talk about, and I think everybody, the listeners need to be aware that this isn't erasing all your taxes. Like you have to know, and you have to do an analysis of how much taxes you've really deferred and when are you going to have to pay? Because you can end up upside down. And this is like, I use a fractional CFO and we, we look at our portfolio and say, what's our liability that's behind us that we need to be aware of? Because you can get yourself upside down in a property and you have to ask your investors, Oh, I know we sold this property for 10 million, but we 1031 six times into this. And now you got to bring money to, to the table to sell your property. So you need to be very aware of what's what, how much you've deferred and methodically, strategically try to reduce that down. So you'll end up with a big problem. How have you gained all this knowledge? I mean, is it from aligning with the right professionals to help, you know, inform you, educate you? Is it self research, a little bit of both? Like, what has your journey been like as a business owner? Because so, I'd say you'd agree with this, right? Like most people in their perspective industries that are, that own their own business have success. They're not spending time learning about a lot of this stuff. They're not making a lot of that time. What does your journey look like? And how, and I guess maybe talk about the importance of the right professionals in your corner along the way. Well, like I talked earlier, I love learning new things. I don't need to become an expert, but I'm always dripping a little bit of something like, okay, oh, I heard about captives. All right, so I've got to go learn a little bit about that. And who do I need to talk to? So I'm constantly asking people, explain this to me. Tell me how this works. And you know, I put a, a, a great team around me. So my team on the high level is, I use a fractional CFO, and that was one of the best decisions I ever made. That, and there are fractional CFO firms out there that can, you can work with for maybe three, four hours a week. I work 12 hours a week with my CFO. That guy quantifies and confirms all my crazy ideas in my head. Can I make this work? I have a really good estate planning attorney. Um, don't have a lot in the market, so I don't have a financial, don't have like a, a financial planner guy. I have a great uh, accounting uh, accountant and CPA. And then I have an insurance guy too that that's almost like, a, uh, almost like, think of a wagon wheel, right? Like I, I don't need to be at the center, but I need to have all those people around. And if one of those pieces on the wagon wheel doesn't work, then it's, it's, it's not going around fast. So identify who you need on your wheel. And, you know, for a while you might have to be at the center, even though I don't want to be, but I am, and then have all your consultants around it. And if one is broken, it isn't going to work. I think you just summarized our business in a nutshell. That's kind of what we, <laughs> what we do is like what we, what we've identified is that a lot of growing business owners just don't have the time, knowledge, or desire to get their professionals aligned. And a lot of the times the, the CPA is not talking to the advisor who's not talking to the mortgage broker and nobody's in alignment and they don't have the time to get all these people on the same page. So that's where we come in as consultants to make sure that we're quarterbacking all of those projects to build the team around. So we no longer have to be the end all be all expert. We're just getting the experts around to create an actual team. So I, I appreciate you saying that. And you're, you're one of the few that's actually taken the initiative to do that. A lot of people just kind of kick the can down the road and then find out that they're, they might have built something awesome, but it's built on a very rocky foundation. Yeah, and, and I think that's great. I was kind of wondering, curious as to what exactly you guys do. but And then getting those people together, whether it's a quarterly call, an annual call, getting everybody talking, because all those pieces are so important. 
and you make a mistake on one or one guy doesn't talk to the other, it could be very expensive. Sure. So as we come to the end of this episode, I guess my last question to you would be if there was a way that you can go back 20 years or 25 years, I think, I think you said you had started when you're 25 and you're 50 now. So let's say we go 25 years back. What could you have done differently or what would you tell your younger self to have accelerated that growth curve a lot quicker? Boy, that's an awesome question. I think the biggest thing that I struggle with is I tried to bootstrap it too hard. I didn't build the team around me and I still struggle from this. Like I just hired a mindset coach to help me overcome because I try to do too much myself. Get the right people around you. Don't You don't need to do it all yourself and you don't need to be an expert in everything. Find the people to put around you, whether it's a group like yourself to put around, but get some people doing some stuff that you can't do. I, I, my natural tendency is, oh, screw it. I'll just do it myself. That doesn't always work. And, th- and so I wish I would not have bootstrapped as long. I would have grown responsibly faster if I would have put a team around me. That's awesome. The power of that is, you know, I think a lot of us sometimes try to wear too many hats at the same time. And the next thing you know, you're, you're chasing, you know, a million things at once and he who chases two rabbits never catches one. Right. So, yeah. So, okay. Awesome. One question we like to always finish off with and ask our guests is, you know, this is the consistency wins podcast, right? You know, you probably heard some of our episodes in the past. This is like the last question we like to ask is, you know, what does consistency mean to you and how has that shown up in your life? you know, in business, you know, personal, professional, whatever that looks like, you know, your definition of consistency. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's just keep going. I mean, I'll tell you what the, the times right now, it's a little bit challenging, but you just keep going, right? Like I had to look at 25 deals just to get to that one crappy deal that I just bought, but I kept going and kept going and it's just batting practice, right? It's the consistent, just keep swinging, just keep swinging. It's okay if you don't hit, but someday you're going to hit. So just keep going, keep practicing. Don't get hung up on, oh, I have to do it now. I have to get this thing exactly right. Just keep swinging. And if it's a single you hit, you're on the board, man. That's all. Just keep going. You know, some guys just want to go out and grand slam first time. Doesn't have to be. Singles add up, man. Wins the game. That's amazing. I love it. That's a great explanation. And, and you know, you're the perfect embodiment of that. The only thing that we challenge you to do is to, you know, take some off your plate. Let other people do some stuff. You've you've earned that right. Nate, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some wisdom. We usually keep it high level, but we wanted to go super granular today because we talked a lot about real estate on this podcast, but we haven't gone really deep. And you had the knowledge to go super deep. Like The fact that we're talking about captive insurance companies is is wild on this podcast. And it's awesome. Let me me give you one, one last thing. I'll go fast. This is 4D chess that I like to play. Right now, I'm looking at opportunity zones. Didn't know anything about them a couple months ago. Got a deal in there. If I develop this building in an opportunity zone and my parents sell their property and they defer their gains by putting it into the opportunity zone development, and then I develop it, and then my kids come in the deal, everyone wins in that circle. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Like Those are the kind of stuff that I just love. Like, All right, how can we set this up so all generations of the family win? I love that kind of stuff. And then the, the rest of the majority of society gets mad at you because you're not paying your quote unquote fair share and you keep in generational wealth. And all it is is just knowledge and information. Yeah. So thank you for being the embodiment of yeah. that and actually living the American dream. So good Thanks, stuff. Man. Thank you, Nate. Appreciate your time. Thank you guys. Appreciate it.